0: Hi, it's Chris. I want to ask you to support this podcast by subscribing to Chris Reback's newsletter. Six days a week, I publish a daily briefing of the ideas, trends, and events you need to know, and not a word more. My thesis is straightforward. There's too much content. We all need a good editor. I can be one. My goal is to help you save time and stay smarter. So if you like these podcasts, please know that newsletter subscribers support the creation not only of the newsletter, but also these podcasts and live events. Use the special link to sign up and get a 30-day free trial at chrisreback.substack.com/crc. That CRC as in Chris Reback's Conversations. 30 days free at chrisreback.substack.com/crc. Also, this episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to WorkingCapitalReview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. For eight years, Ben Rhodes served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama engaged in issues ranging from re-establishing relations with Cuba to helping negotiate the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran nuclear deal. Now, more than four years after leaving that role, but still engaged in business, politics, and international relations, Rhodes has written a book about his personal post-Obama journey that sought to answer a simple question. What happened to the world, America, and himself, as the undertow of history pulled us into the currents of nationalism and authoritarianism. And what should we do about it? It's titled, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. As Rhodes learned and you'll hear, there may be simple questions. There are no simple answers. More about Ben. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The World As It Is, a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC and co-host of Pod Save the World. Maybe you've heard of it. Before my conversation with Ben, though, and ask for me to you. I hope you like these Chris Reback's conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. And of course, don't forget to sign up for a free trial of my daily briefing newsletter at chrisreback.substack.com CRC. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Ben Rhodes. Ben, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Glad to be with you. So let's start with the important stuff. What's harder, the first book or the second one? I mean, with kids, and you have two, it's definitely the first one. But your first book, Child, became a New York Times bestseller. So you've got a high bar here for number two, Ben.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this one was harder. I mean, I wrote the first one in in a year. I mean, Mm. I basically just... um, I signed a contract and I actually handed in the book one year to the day that I signed the contract, and it was. You're the
0: first author in history who has ever done it in a year and met the deadline. So you actually could be argued you did it wrong.
1: I made a decision to just. It was so fresh. The eight-year experience was so fresh in that book. When I look back on it, is really the first draft. Uh, You know, it's just like here's how I process this. I haven't even digested it yet. This one. I really lived with this for three years um, because, you know, as you'll see, you know, I, I traveled around the world for this book. You know, um, spent time in Hungary, spent time in Hong Kong, spent time in a whole bunch of places, talking to people, gathering stories, and living the events. I'm, I'm talking about the rise of authoritarianism and nationalism, the kind of fall of democracy, um, and I'm living those events in the United States at the same time that I'm writing about them in other places. So. This was a really challenging experience. Um, and you know, we can talk about this, but you know, I ended up having to kind of challenge a lot of my own assumptions. Yes. Um, um, and but it was also therefore much more satisfying. I, I like and I'm not just saying this, I like this book better because, you know, it was the first one was kind of like, hey, here's what happened. You know, I'm just gonna tell you the events from, from the time I went to work for Obama till January twentieth, twenty seventeen. This one, I really, you know, my writing led me in places that I didn't know I was going to go. And, and that, that was hard, but also uh, thrilling. This
0: book was about America. It was about the world. But it was about you. I mean, it's a yeah. really personal book. And you put yourself out there in that book. So let's start with you. You had... And have had the incredible privilege – I'm sure you see it that way – of a seat at the table for the highest level decision-making of international affairs. You know, the president, secretaries of state, prime ministers, you are surely – and it comes across highly respectful – about the opportunities that you yeah. you know created for yourself and and had yet as you've written a book about where the world and America stand you didn't seek out just those types of leaders yeah. i mean sure you have the rare benefit of getting to bounce your ideas off of president obama yeah. um, you know i, I bounced mine off my buddy down the street you <laughs> yeah. do yours with obama it's it's really it's like the, it's like it's the same thing yeah instead you sought out
1: individuals, dissidents, opposition figures, um, young people. Why did you do that? I'm so glad you noticed this. Um, So, you know, I I was spit out of this position of power. Um, And the book is in many ways about power. You know, for eight years, I'm in the room, um, and then I'm spit out – and Donald Trump is president. <laughs> so not only am I no longer in the room, but kind of the opposite of everything I thought I was working on, everything I believed in is there. And that's an incredibly disorienting experience. And, mm. and I, I take people into my feelings about that. And, and I think this book is weirdly more personal than even my memoir because um, I'm wrestling with it. But then what I found is I had this unique opportunity as someone who was in power to then go and seek out the people who kind of lived – on the other end of the issues that I worked on. In Russia, you know, we obviously dealt with Putin, but now I could sit down and talk to you know, Zhanan Nemsova, whose father had been assassinated mm-hmm. um, in the shadow of the Kremlin, to, to Alexei Navalny, um, who obviously is Putin's chief opponent, but then also to, to young Hong Kong protesters, to, to activists in Hungary who are fighting for democracy. And, and it's this experience of being someone who was in power who could then go talk to people kind of on the other end of power um, that I think makes, you know, the book exciting to me Um, and and I kind of inhabited their experiences. How have they lived these events that I looked at from kind of the exalted distance of the White House? Um, And and what can I learn from inhabiting their experience?
0: And this word carries negative connotation these days. And I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the best sense of privilege. Yeah. The privilege of getting to spend that time That's a rare opportunity, uh, particularly with a a wife and two kids, to get to take that time. And as a reader, it feels like, okay, this guy took advantage of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I got the opportunity to kind of see what was happening in America and around the world through these other people's eyes. And and I think there are two stories that illustrate that in in different ways. I mean, the first is kind of when I had the idea to really pursue this model is I was meeting with this Hungarian activist uh, and we were sitting in, in Berlin And I asked him, yeah, Shondor Letterer, um, and I asked him, hey, how how did you guys go from being this democracy to kind of being a, you know, kind of a one party autocracy in in a decade? And he said, well, that's simple. Uh, There was a right wing populist backlash to the financial crisis that elevated this guy, Victor Orban, to be prime minister. Then he redrew the parliamentary districts to favor his party. He packed the courts with right wing judges. He enriched kind of a bunch of cronies through corruption who then, Financed politics and bought up the media and created this kind of right wing media machine and they wrapped it all up in this nationalist message of you know we are the real Hungarians, and it 's us versus them, and the them is immigrants and it's George Soros and its liberal elites and he 's talking and i 'm like, well he could, he could be describing my 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 experience the last decade in American politics and and what i 'd seen happen with the Republican party, so I, I could kind of see America through. Through the story of what was happening there in Hungary in a, in a different way. And, and then another person that's more connected to what I did in government, you know, Mohammed Sultan, had been a, a prisoner, uh, a political prisoner in Egypt, uh, who I'd participated in the effort to kind of free him. And he told me this story of being this kind of Egyptian American kid um, who goes to Egypt from Ohio when the protests started in the Arab Spring. He stays because he thinks, finally, my Egyptian identity and American identity you know, both share the opportunity of democracy. Two years later, in 2013, there's a coup. He's shot uh, in a protest. He's arrested. He's thrown in jail. He's tortured. He goes on a hunger strike. Um, and then in the most surreal thing I'd ever heard in some ways – they let an ISIS recruiter into a cell, because yeah. the government kind of wants to radicalize people who are political opponents, kind of make them all look like they're, they're radicals, and also, frankly, to justify the billions of dollars that my government gives them. And I was a part of that too. And he debates this ISIS recruiter about nonviolent resistance versus violent resistance, and how do you create change? And and I I, I had to reckon with the fact that, you know, any enterprise that is paying billions of dollars to a government that imprisons an American citizen and then puts an ISIS recruiter in a cell because they want to radicalize him to kind of perpetuate the cycle of us giving them the money. I mean, you know, I as someone I wish more people in power like kinda had to, to to face that, you know? Um, and, and 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 so those are two very different stories, but they what they have in common is sometimes we have to look at ourselves through the eyes of other people. Um, you know, it's like a family where there's some dysfunction in the family, and you have to go talk to your friends about it to see what's happening. You know that that was how I felt in this entire process of reporting and, and writing this book.
0: Conversation around dysfunctional family. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, I, I think a lot of us, a lot of us, might be able to relate. And I'm struck by something that you just said. It through their eyes, you also take a look at yourself, because I I, I felt myself feeling that about you, thinking that about you, that on some level, was it difficult for you in terms of considering and reconciling the roles that you've gotten to play with the result of um, where America and the world landed? I mean, it, it, there's this quote of yours early on in the book um, on page seven that where you say this wasn't some black swan event, easily, easily explained by a couple of years worth of scary headlines. It ignored the lived reality of the eight years that I'd worked in the White House, the feeling that a cancer was metastasizing everywhere despite our efforts to treat it. And I read that, and I, and I started to wonder, you know, how difficult was it for you to go out into the world to see the disease firsthand and know that for the previous eight years you had been one of the doctors?
1: I mean, it was it was definitely difficult, you know, I think, because there's kind of a reflexive tendency of people who have been in power to defend every single thing they did and and to – to, you know, not want to interrogate what they did. I mean, uh, to me, I mean, part of what I'm speaking of there is that I could feel in the Obama years, um, even if I, you know, agreed with most of what we did, the currents, right, the the currents of history, as I describe it, were just, they were steadily moving in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, like Obama, yeah. there weren't a lot of other progressive leaders around the world for him to work with. You know, the Chinese were becoming more authoritarian. Putin was becoming more aggressive. And and, and, you know, like some people could, you know, should should interrogate what we did, but it also felt like that this had been building. And 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 part of what I look at is, you know, for instance, the financial crisis happens, and it was a far more explosive event, I think, globally than than we understood at the time. You know, yeah, your telling
0: of that is is excellent, and you're connecting what the various feelings and outcomes that the woman in Hungary and what her yeah. father went through.
1: Well, th- thanks. And because, you know, the basic point there was that for people around the world, including in this country, in America, that was kind of the end of the faith in a certain global order. You know, that this kind of capital, spread of capitalism and globalization and American-led global order was working. I mean, people were like, wait a second, this is not working. Um, yeah. And as Navalny said to me, you know, and these are policies that that you know obviously some of these started under Bush and some of these continued under Obama. You know, Putin could basically justify his rule, you know, his corruption, by saying, "Look, they just screwed over all their people with this financial collapse, and they bailed out the bankers, and 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 everybody else <laughs> kind of got the wrong end of the deal, and that that opened the door. You know, in, in the Hungary story, for instance, that opened the door to a nationalist like Orbán who could say, "Hey, look, you know, I." I you're losing your sense of identity. You're losing your sense of faith in institutions, your sense of faith that the democracy itself works. I'm offering you the oldest sense of identity in the book, you know, the, the nationalism that frankly is more the norm throughout history. <laughs> um and then the Chinese look at the kind of collapse and confidence in the American-led model of globalization. They're like, well, maybe we can challenge these guys. Maybe we don't have to sit back and wait. Maybe we should be more assertive and I definitely felt that in the Obama years and I think by the later Obama years, you you could feel it more acutely right, when Putin is like invading Ukraine. Um, But it was the shock of Trump getting elected, of of it happening here that really then forced me to question all these assumptions. And the the core assumption is – and the reason I kind of go back and tell my own coming-of-age story, as an American, particularly one who came of age in the end of the Cold War – I had a certain assumption that things just were getting better inevitably. You know that, that these questions were settled and that that freedom and democracy were the norm, and that's was going to expand and, and continue. It was, and as think,
0: we know, the end of history.
1: The end of history, exactly. I mean, I, this book is a bit of a response to that argument, and because uh, what we've lived the last few years and up through January six, and, and I kind of put the finishing touches of this book eerily right around then is that it's not the end of history. Like, history is here, and none of these things are predetermined. Um, and frankly, the norm in history is a reversion back to nationalism, to conflict, to to anti-democratic uh, forms of society. Um, and, and I had to, through the process of writing this book, kind of disabuse myself of the inevitability of progress, while also, though, on, on the hopeful side, you know, recognizing that a lot of other people around the world were seeing the same thing as me, you know, from Alexei Navalny to Hong Kong protesters to these young people in Hungary, people are figuring this out um, and, and, and kind of beginning to push back. Um, and so my hope is that this moment is the beginning of the pendulum swimming back and not the, <laughs> the inevitable momentum away from democracy.
0: And so I want to ask you about the how on that, because I am with you. I think there's no doubt that there is a global recognition that we're at some stage in a, another shift of history, and yeah. you, you just described it. How does that gap get bridged? And I, this is something that I had been thinking about already, so you forgive me, because there's a little bit of a lead up here, but yeah. it connects to the B&B employee in Harpers Ferry, West mm-hmm. Virginia. and and your experience there, and as well, you know, January 6th. So I'm trying to think, how do you fight back when the arguments you get that we all hear are frequently not based on reality? The January 6th insurrection, it was nothing, it was tourists. And it's not enough to say, well, January 6th happened, we all watched it. They know that. It's the ability to try to whitewash what everyone saw. And you can fill in the examples you do with, uh, you know, with what happens in, in Russia um, what happened in, yeah. in Hungary. Um, you wrote that, uh, you know, your character Lorraine, who said of the Chinese Communist Party, looking at a deer and believing someone who tells you it's a horse. Yeah. Right? So how do you get out of that? How do you get out of a situation you faced in Harper's Ferry? How do you start to bridge those types of gaps?
1: That's the question. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that, that you took that away because that, that's what I really want people to wrestle with. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, you're right to identify the Lorraine anecdote. You know, every authoritarian system depends upon changing objective reality, changing the truth. I mean, the famous Orwell statement, you know, two plus two equals five. um, That's what a totalitarian system does. And if you look at everything from the Chinese Communist Party to Vladimir Putin to the Republican Party in this country, there's a kind of effort to shift uh, objective reality and to put, Put people into bubbles of conspiracy theory or propaganda or nationalism. Um, so, how do you deal with that? How do you push back on that? You know, I, I think the first thing is you have to activate. And well, put it this way: th- there's some policy things you can do, right? So, for instance, the, the woman I meet in West Virginia who clearly just believed things that weren't true because she had consumed a steady diet of. Uh, uh, your right-wing media in this country, not just Fox, but you know, she'd clearly gone deeper on the internet into kind of conspiracy theory, kind of foreshadowing even like the QAnon theory.
0: And, and had the great opportunity to debate Benghazi with Ben Rhodes.
1: A, a protagonist, yeah.
0: Yeah, what key protagonist before she knew that it was Ben Rhodes. I mean that's S-
1: – Totally surreal remarkable. experience, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, to, to, to have someone who thinks I'm somebody I'm not. You know, a whole conversation with someone who thinks I'm this this evil guy, um, and then is surprised when she learns who I am because she's like, "Well, you seem like a nice guy," and I'm <laughs> like, "Yeah, because I'm not that person." But um, you know, some of this is policy, right? Like we need to get our arms around social media, and 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 and, and frankly, there's a regulatory answer to, to to combating the spread of disinformation. But more fundamentally, right? I think what has to happen is. People who are against the direction of events need to become as connected with one another as the people who've been behind them. You know, Part of what I try to show here is mm. that authoritarians around the world have been learning from each other. They've been copying each other. Viktor Orban's playbook for seizing power in Hungary drew very heavily on Vladimir Putin's playbook in Russia – Candidly, the Republican Party's playbook here in the United States has drawn on a lot of the similar tactics that I've talked about. There's not a shared sense of solidarity and interconnection between the people pushing back. You know, the the Hong Kong protest movement, you know, the Alexei Navalny's of the world in Russia, the Hungarian opposition, you know, Stacey Abrams and the Fair Fight people here in the United States. That is actually beginning to change. Um, You see movements. Uh, At no point in my life have there been so many kind of broad-based movements. You know, when you look at the the pro-democracy movements in places like Hong Kong or Belarus, movements against inequality in Latin America, movements, uh, the climate strike movement everywhere, the Black Lives Matter movement. What all these things have in common is is they're against this kind of anti-democratic authoritarian strain that is happening, and they need to learn from each other. And the Hungarians, you know, that that I talk to. We have a lot to learn from them about how to organize political parties and begin to push back. But they're also learning and they're looking at people like Stacey Abrams and learning how to organize. Um, so I, I think part of the answer here is just the people – they're more of us than them. I mean people do not want to live like this. Um, you know, there, There's a kind of fashionable thing in the foreign policy circles I work on that, well, maybe the Chinese model is is more attractive because it creates prosperity yes. and it can get things done efficiently. Well – there's one city in the world that literally had the option of choosing the, the Chinese model, the, the people of Hong Kong. They did not want to live like that. <laughs> they could see it encroaching. They could see the, the Communist Party telling them the deer is a horse and the whole city rose up. Now there's an imbalance of power. So that that movement lost in the short term. But I think in the longer term, it foreshadowed an awakening that We see what's going on here. And so I think what really needs to happen, yes, there's all kinds of policies that I'd like to see change. But I think the interconnection of movements globally is the one thing that has the capacity to kind of move the needle. And it can move because you know talking to Hong Kongers in 97 when Hong Kong was handed over from British sovereignty to Chinese, everybody thought China was going to become more like Hong Kong and not the other way around. Things changed in 20 years. Well, things can change again back in the other direction, but only if you see that kind of popular mobilization and an inter- interconnection between people pushing back.
0: It's important to learn from, talk to the folks who have gone through it before or are going through it. I have found myself wishing that the interview that, besides this one, of course, that I would love <laughs> to be able to do um, right now would be with Vaclav Havel. Yeah, yeah. Somebody who thought hard about and, and acted around this idea of how do you deal with a society that is being told a deer is a horse? has got to be something there.
1: Well, there is. And, and, and I think part, and part of the lesson of a hovel um, and anybody who, who wages kind of a multi-decade effort like that on behalf of democracy is it can feel like all these movements are failing. But they fail and fail and fail until they succeed. And when they succeed, it's usually kind of like a dam breaking and a flood. You know, and when I look around in the U.S., you know, it's not just that Joe Biden won an election. The conversation in this country is so dramatically different than a decade ago on all this stuff. Even though the same trends I'm talking about were were, were there a decade ago, the, the awareness that our democracy is under threat, that there needs to be reform to that democracy to protect things like the right to vote or to get money out of politics, that social media has caused more harm than it's created good. That that you know, frankly, the structure of our economy has created inequalities that are destabilizing. Like that, that the conversation has already shifted a, a good deal. Um, and, and I think what a guy like Havel recognizes, like the persistence of believing that things can can get better. You know, an autocratic system is designed to make you think it can't. And I talk about this a lot in the book the, of how the Hong Kong or and the Russians, like there's information. Environment created to make them think politics is not worth your time. Don't think about it. You'll only end up being defeated, or you'll only end up cynical if you're Russian. That's the strategy: is to turn people off, to deactivate them, um, and to leave politics to the powerful. That's not what's happening in the world. You know, people are getting more involved, not less. And, and to me, that's the hope. And, and
0: Navalny gave you a great line on that, and you know, of course, that was before what he's going through now, was that every time he does start to feel frustrated or starts to potentially give up hope in his own situation with Russia, something happens. The government does something that gets him back motivated again. And it would seem true that for those efforts to continue, it, it requires just the ability to stay motivated.
1: And can, can I say one thing about that? Because he's, he's very much like Havel in the sense that you know, he, he told me, look, I'm not just looking to be a dissident. Um, I'm looking to win. Like I want things to change in Russia. I wouldn't waste my time, you know, just being persecuted for the sake being persecuted. And yet, you know, the last time I was in contact with him was right before he flew back to Russia. He was in Germany recovering mm. from being poisoned. Um, he knew what was going to happen to him when he went back. He thinks that that's part of winning. You know, <laughs> um, it may not look that way, um, and and tragically, he may not even make it himself. But uh, I think what he realizes, like Hobble, is if I'm a leader and people are looking to me, if if I give up my belief, if I look like, eh, I don't think this is worth it, I'm going to stay in Germany, um, then why would anybody else think things can change, right? Uh, and that's a very powerful, you know, lesson. Did he tell you he was going back? Did you know that? He didn't. Um, you know, I was, uh, he, I was, the last time I, you know, I was just kind of trading message with him and he was making, he was making jokes, like he was you know, has this kind of dark sense of humor. Hmm. Um, but I mean, he told me, you know, he told me this thing about there was that I couldn't get out of my head when I saw everything that happened to him, which is that of course he's scared. Uh, of course it's scary. He said to me, "Of course it's scary when the the cell door closes, and and I know they can do anything." Um, but that that part of what kept him going was this belief that he could win, and and part of it was. That his family supported him it was just like a very human thing. My wife is is on board with this, hmm. and and I saw her, you know, go to Russia and participate in protest, and yeah. and 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 I couldn't get those words out of my head. That, that it's not just Navalny, it's 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 his family, and everything I learned about the guy in the process of writing this book and and talking to him made it unsurprising that he did go back.
0: Yeah, it, it's a remarkable story, and yes, we all saw the video of his wife and starting from him kissing her goodbye. Yeah. And they had clearly made that a decision. Choice. Yeah. yeah they, they, together. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Current events. I can't talk to a guy like you um, without getting a little bit of uh, your your thoughts on current events. You mentioned Biden. And as well, I, it's, it's my take, um, as an outsider, I'm only marginally less removed from the center of power than uh, you have been. <laughs> That what you just said about China and about the China model and the tension, the, the, the clash between historical American democracy and whatever that is kind of evolving and being reinvented into, as democracy is supposed to do, in my opinion, when I read what Biden says and, and listen to him, that's clearly at the center of what yeah. he thinks he is there to do. So that's going on internationally on some level. As well, on the domestic agenda, as you know, Biden's being compared to FDR, is being compared to LBJ in terms of, you know, the size and progressiveness of his domestic agenda. You know as well as I do that um, if we could have a conversation with LBJ, he would tell us, well, you might want to focus on domestic issues, but yeah, um, yeah. The, yeah the foreign affairs can can unwind a presidency. When you look around, do you see a potential, quote, biden's vietnam israel gaza comes to mind russia ukraine comes to mind china taiwan comes to mind afghanistan as you and i are having this conversation today there's more news that towns and taliban is taking back territory as the u.s exits if you were advising biden is one of these most pressing in your mind
1: Hmm. that's a good way of framing the question Um I think that the, what's so challenging about the world and, and and the world that's faced by an American president is um, there's challenges of inaction and action, right? Uh, so, um, you know, when I look out at, at at what could be, you, you know, if you look at an Iran, for instance, um, you know, we made a judgment that, like, obviously, the United States is not going to allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon that would be so destabilizing for, for reasons that take a long time to talk about. But, but, but another war in the Middle East with a country as sophisticated as Iran would, I mean, oh my gosh, you know, like would, would make uh, the Iraq war probably look, um, you know, uh, like a smaller endeavor. Like, yeah. Um, yeah it's much and, smaller. And, and so the challenge for them is, is you don't want to, you don't want to get drawn into a war that you don't absolutely have to fight, <laughs> you know. Um, and and so Afghanistan is going to be a particular challenge because um, things are going to get worse there. Um, the question is, can we make them better by fighting a war there? You know, I don't think so. Um, and it's a tragedy. But the tragedy is the Taliban has been taking territory for years now um, with American troops there. Um, and I think what Biden's calculated is like I, I – I, we can't keep spending trillions of dollars sending people to fight in a war that started before they were born, right? Iran, I hope they avoid the trap of getting back on a cycle towards conflict with Iran by getting back into a nuclear deal. But when I look out at it, I do think that there's real flashpoints. Um, Taiwan um, is definitely one of them. Um, I don't think that – Xi Jinping uh, wants to end his tenure, which is going to go on for a while obviously, um, without Taiwan being reunited with China. Um, and managing that so as – to try to avoid a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and to try to avoid America getting into war with China is an enormously complicated piece of business that they will have to do. Um, managing pushing back against Vladimir Putin um, without him – Encroaching further into Europe with another Ukraine-style action in some other country is 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 tricky. So the the things that can really derail not just a presidency but kind of upend the global order are the great power conflicts. You know, get you know, something with Russia, something with China. They have to figure out a way, and this is I'm sympathetic to how hard this is to to I think push back um, without the pushback leading you into a war. Um, and, and I think in doing so, and thus far they've they've I think gotten this, they have to recognize that the best way to push back is by fixing things here in the United States. Like the, the when I when I look at the Cold War, we kind of seem to internalize a lesson that we won that through our foreign policy. I don't think that's why we won the Cold War. I mean sure it contributed to it. We had allies, we had a defense budget, all the rest of it. I think it was the fact that by the time that the late eighties rolled around, it was so obvious that life was better. On one side of the Iron Curtain, than the other. People wanted to live like us. They wanted a system like ours, not like the Soviets. That it was what we did at home. And by the way, even things like the civil rights movement contributed to that, because it took away, you know, part of the argument that now nah, America is full of it. They're just as, you know, they 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 have just their own flavor of uh, of subjugation. Um, and, and so I think that the answer to this challenge from China. In Russia. And I think, you know, I make this point in the book. China is the one that's the real, Russia's kind of the spoiler. China's the one that's kind of coming in to, to take over and kind of re, reshape the world. The answer to that is, is, is starts here. You know, like we got to fix our democracy. We got to make sure that our democracy can do big things. We got to, we got to redevelop the example of a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. That's ultimately going to be more important than how many ships we have in the South China Sea or something. You know, even though that's a, a piece of it, uh, and that's also a way of thinking about it that is less likely to lead you into into a war.
0: Your resume is an international affairs, yeah. foreign affairs guy. Do you find yourself thinking more? Domestically, did that surprise you? Is that something that you came away from your journeys with? Because you're you're sounding, for a foreign policy guy, you're sounding strongly domestic agenda. And I, I'm I'm oversimplifying and trying to have a little bit of fun with you as well, but you know what I mean.
1: No, that's exactly right. Uh, yes, hundred percent. And um, you know, I, I came to realize that what America is, the example we're setting, how we think of our identity, um, what what we're showing the world. Is much more important than any single foreign policy we could pursue, and I heard that from people. I heard that from people in Hong Kong. I heard that from people like Navalny. Heard that from people in Hungary. They weren't looking to debate the nuances of American Middle East policy with me. They were like, you, you know, Navalny said to me, "The worst thing about Trump is that, you know, his whole life uh, that he's been involved in politics, he said he's been making an argument that in a democracy there's less corruption." And better people rise to the top than in autocracies, and he's like, Trump was a body blow to that, <laughs> you know, because because here at the top, and he said this to me, at the top of your system is a corrupt guy who's an autocrat. Um, the, the, I think we Americans don't realize it like what how what we're modeling is more important, and I think people in foreign policy, by the way, lose sight of this too, because we think it's all you know, there's some formula that if if we can create. You know, some mix of military spending, or you know, targeted strikes someplace, and or deal struck here. All that stuff is really important, but it's not as important as just like, hey, what does the world see when they look at America?
0: So, as we start to conclude, one of the things that you wrote was, um, and it's kind of the maybe the central point of maybe it's the why. You wrote, "We must determine what it means to be American again." And I thought about that, and then I I thought as well, after your four-year odyssey or three-year odyssey, do you feel you figured it out? And I I started to think about uh, the scene that you describe of you and Cody Keenan in in the back of the car, and your wife's driving, and maybe at that point you only had one kid, and it's kind of nestled between – uh, you and Cody are back there with him. and you're compiling a list of heroes for President Obama for his speech at Selma 50 years uh, after the events in Selma. Is there a connection in thinking about those heroes with Cody Keenan, former White House speechwriter, and with your journey? Did you come to some determination of what it means to be American again?
1: I did. Um, and I'm so glad you you asked this. Um, And I'm going to give the long answer, but trust me, there's a short answer at the end of it. You know, I came to think about my own life, and in the Cold War, we, our identity was very tied up with that. You know, we were for freedom, and they were for communism or uh, Mm -hmm. dictatorship. Yes. And and look. Of course, we didn't live up to that. <laughs> and of course, there, like, we, but, but, I, I know from my own feeling, uh, you know, growing up there, that that was the national identity. Like, we were the the people for freedom, and they were the people for the other thing, and we all kind of agreed on that. And by the way, that kind of put some guardrails too around. Like, someone like Trump probably couldn't become president in the Cold War. It was too serious, right? You know, um, and we never agreed on a national identity post-Cold War. What are we about? You know? And 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 I think Trump and Obama represent two like kind of diametrically opposed answers to that. You know, Trump and we've always had two stories in this country, right? All men are created equal was written by a guy who owned slaves, right? And and Trump is the kind of reactionary strain that runs through American history, you know, that that no, this is for some people, not everybody. We have to keep people out. It's it. Let's face it. It's a it's rooted in a kind of a white supremacy um, that that America is great because we're we're strong and it's it's for some people. Um, And Obama is in this tradition of no. America is about trying to make things better and the democracy allows us to do that. And that led to that speech where he basically came up with this kind of radical idea of creating the canon of progressive heroes. You know. Mm. That that, that, that Selma represents the whole story. On one side of the bridge is John Lewis and a bunch of people who want to march across that bridge. On the other side of that bridge is like the the police wanting to push back. That's the whole American story miniature. And so he's defining who's on our side of the bridge. And we had this kind of delirious, joyful experience, you know. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, like the people who fought for women's rights. You know, Jackie Robinson stealing home base. People who invented jazz. You know, like the Emerson and Thoreau made an appearance. You know, like just that. Who is the canon of people that did the work of trying to make America better? Um, and I get excited just thinking about it. But by the way, they're also not the people. And this isn't just like a woke exercise. This is a question of like, you know. What does it mean to be American? And That leads to the answer that I want to give you. I realized in writing this book, like being American, yes, it's about a multiracial, multiethnic democracy that can work, but it's also about doing the work. The act of being an American Mm -hmm. is pursuing the story that we tell ourselves that we never live up to, (laughs) pursuing the story of a multiracial, multiethnic democracy that can work, where people are treated equally, have equal dignity. It's the work itself – All those people that were in that canon that we talked about in that Selma speech, that's being American. It's not just something that we take as granted by God. It's not just something that's inevitable. It's not the end of history. It's the rolling up your sleeves, right? And that's why a president alone can't solve this either. Like it takes enough people walking across that bridge.
0: You got to do the work.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I hate to do this to you because you seem like a nice guy and I really, I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but you just, you, you mentioned the two stories and the two sides and maybe I want to get you in a little bit of trouble, but I got to close with the question that I'm certain will leave half of your friends and family furious with you and the other half <laughs> celebrating. Part of the uh, two sides of personality that you write about, of course, is your own, which leads to the really important question. Are you more texas or new york and your recent nick's tweets kind of give the answer away i think but why don't i let you take a whack at it
1: i'm a new yorker um and uh you know i i I say the book you know if i had to kind of how did i think of my identity as a kid it was like american new yorker and i have a jewish background although my father is christian from texas and that infuses me i mean i I I soaked up the Texas side as well. I went to college down there, but New York to me is, um, and and I get that not every place can be like New York, but like what I love about it is like New York is like the world in miniature, in America in miniature. Everybody's there, people from everywhere, and 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 I I love that, and um, yeah. As a Knicks fan, I um, to see that energy in Madison Square Garden, which I remember as a kid going to games there and feeling that feels like the whole world is at the game you know, it feels like like it, it, you know both in the diversity and in the noise and just in the energy i love the energy mm. of new york now my wife because i subjected her to eight years of a white house lifestyle got to pick where we went next and she's from out here in la and and i gotta say la's there's a lot to recommend it too but i'll always be a new yorker
0: I had a feeling that was uh, where it was going to go. Well, the Knicks, thank you. Um, And I thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for what you wrote. You took the reader on a journey. So thank you for that.
1: No, I appreciate that. And and again, you always want people to read your book, but especially this one, even more than the last one, because it was I structured in a way of like I want you to come with me you come with I'm traveling I'm talking to people I want you to hear these people they're fascinating you know Um, so I'm glad that you took that away thanks for the time Ben thanks a lot